1971, and Dina Gillia Whitaker is about 12 years old. She's doing what kids do, watching TV. And on comes a PSA, a memorable one, one that would stick in her brain for decades. It starred an American Indian. So the commercial opens with this native guy, and he's clearly native because he's wearing buckskins and it's fringed, and he's paddling a canoe. For native people like me, looking at that, it's like, wow, you know, I recognize that. That's, you know, he's like a hero figure. It's a calm, picturesque scene. The man's got two braids hanging down by his ears, a feather tucked into one. He looks stoic. But soon, the ad takes a turn. And then we start seeing litter in the water. And the camera backs up and we see there's all this smoke spewing and the air is really dirty. And we see that he's in this area. It's highly industrial. An old newspaper floats past. Smokestacks belch dirty air. His silhouette shines through a sheet of smog. He soon reaches a rocky shore and he pulls his canoe onto land. And then that's when the narrator says, Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. And there's all these cars driving by. And and all of a sudden, you see somebody throws out a bag of trash. And it lands right on top of his moccasined feet. The camera cuts to his face. Slowly running down his cheek, a single tear. This is the moment that really sears itself into the American imaginary, the crying Indian, this guy, this Indian with this tear uh, running down his cheek. The commercial became known as the crying Indian ad. The message? You created this trash. You can pick it up. People start pollution. People can stop it. Dina says the message felt powerful because of who it was coming from. Seeing it was inspirational. You know, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed even to say that because of what I know about him now. Actually, there was a lot about this ad that wasn't what it seemed. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On Earth Day, April 22nd, 1971, 51 years ago this week, the crying Indian commercial debuted on televisions across America. It stuck in the country's consciousness. But there were surprising forces behind the ad. Today, we dig into the powerful players who shaped how we think about environmental action to this day. We're talking trash and trash talking. So stick around. That's coming up. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. The Crying Indian PSA struck a chord with many Americans. I mean, I wasn't even alive when it came out, and I'm familiar with it. But I know The Crying Indian from its parodies, a reference baked into the culture. It's come up in shows like The Simpsons, Married with Children, South Park, Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> I'd swipe these from that Indian while he was crying about the garbage. <laughs> it was on Friends. Chandler, what are you doing? There is a trash can right there. Well, I thought if I littered, that crying Indian might come by and save us. <laughs> I mean, could it be any more ubiquitous? The ad aired at a time when the nation was waking up to environmental devastation and its threat to our way of life. In the 60s, several stories of major pollution took over headlines. Americans had read about the pesticide DDT poisoning wildlife. They'd witnessed California beaches blackened by a massive oil spill. Americans had read about an Ohio River catching fire multiple times because of industrial waste. Concern was growing, and people took action. The plea in this outcry heard across the land today was for somebody to do something before it's too late. An estimated 20 million people participated in the first Earth Day in 1970, with protesters from New York to L.A. The most talked about offense in the nation remains pollution. And today Earlier that spring, students at the University of Michigan put a car on trial for pollution. They found it guilty. And then they started smashing the car to pieces. It was a kangaroo court. The defendant didn't have a chance. You're looking at what may become a new wave of student protest, a wave that is bound to gain support from less alienated circles in our society. At the same protest, students also demonstrated against single-use cans. While the newscaster on the scene reported the story, students tossed bags of cans at his feet. The pile of trash got so tall, it totally hid him from view. In case anybody missed the point of the story and the whole demonstration, it is simply this, that if we're not all careful, someday we're going to be in it all the way up to here. Trash, litter, it was piling up. It was becoming a big problem. A nonprofit came forward with a solution. They called themselves Keep America Beautiful. Their mission was to, well, keep America beautiful. For them, that meant teaching people to take care of their own trash and ridding the nation of the growing eyesore that was the litter problem. And they got their message out with an ad, 
the one you heard at the top of the show, the one starring that crying Indian. Some people have a deep, abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. The ad debuted on the one-year anniversary of Earth Day in 1971. People start pollution. People can stop it. I was very much moved by it and being moved by the idea that I wanted to be on the correct side of that argument. Bob Thompson is a TV and pop culture professor at Syracuse University, and he remembers seeing the PSA when he was about 12 years old. I didn't want to be the person in that car throwing this garbage out onto this uh, gentleman. I wanted to be associated with the canoe and the trees and the silence and the Edenic imagery. The ad worked on Bob. Even at that young age, he said he felt he could personally take on the responsibility of curbing pollution. The ad got him and many other Americans to pick up their trash. This, I suppose, is the good news about this ad. It really was effective in one little slice. It really made me and my brother want to quit throwing stuff on the ground. So I guess on the very basic level of a public service announcement trying to get people to stop littering, I think this was probably a very, very effective ad. The ad's reach was massive. The Ad Council helped make the commercial and tracked its progress. People around the country called in requesting information on how they could reduce pollution. Within the first four months of the commercial's premiere, Keep America Beautiful sent out more than 100,000 brochures to eager callers. Years later, Ad Age, a leading advertising magazine, named it one of the top 100 ads of the 20th century. So did it work? Well, it's impossible to say what the ad alone influenced. It was part of larger anti-littering campaigns run by Keep America Beautiful. And those campaigns coincided with several states and cities cracking down on litter. Another big thing that helped shift the sentiment around single-use cans? The rise of recycling. Now you could have your Coke and recycle it too. But before you go singing the praises of this campaign, let's talk about that crying Indian. For the same reasons that image was iconic, it was also problematic. Let's unpack. Remember Dina Gillia Whitaker from the top of the show? When she first saw the ad, she was inspired by the actor who played the American Indian. She's a Sinaixt descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes. Now, she's a lecturer of American Indian Studies at Cal State San Marcos and has an entirely different take on the crying Indian. We were all kind of duped by this guy. She says that the ad used a trope that shows up a lot in media. It's called the vanishing Indian. This is an Indian who um, is not a modern Indian. This is a guy, it's like he stepped out of the 19th century into the 20th century. She says the native man in the ad looks like he's visiting from back in time. With his fringed buckskin jacket and moccasined feet, he's wearing clothing from a bygone era. He's a stereotype. He was also symbolic. Dina says that this character of the American Indian man was effective because it made people feel guilty. Guilty enough they would move to action. 
She says the character tapped into the historic shame many Americans felt for the genocide of indigenous peoples. As this population decline happens, Americans start feeling safe. And so they have the ability to start kind of feeling this moral twinge of regret for the disappearance of Indians. Then there's this other problem, the actor, a guy who called himself Iron Eyes Cody. He had made a career in Hollywood playing American Indian characters. We all believed that he was truly a Native person. Well, he wasn't. In 1996, the New Orleans Times-Picayune reported that his real name was Espera de Corti. And he was white, born to Italian parents. But he denied it. And then there was that tear, that iconic single drop down the cheek. Even that wasn't real. Apparently, Iron Eyes couldn't produce the goods on set, so they used a fake tear made out of glycerin instead. So, is everyone counting along? We've got the whack-as-hell stereotype. We've got this guy accused of being American Indian Rachel Dolezal. We've got the props department faking award-winning tears. Truly a cornucopia of fakery. But here's the real kicker. The group that was behind the ad keep America beautiful, they were backed by some major industry players. After the break, we reveal the powerful forces behind the PSA curtain. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back. There's no time to waste. Let's dumpster dive back in. Don't worry. I don't mean literally. Okay, sorry. I'm done. I'm done. Moving on. So you heard about the staying power of the crying Indian ad and the less than honest depiction of, well, basically everything in it. But let me tell you, the thing that really got me, the thing that made me go, damn, were the folks behind the ad. I should have seen it coming, but I really didn't. Go with me on a little tangent for a second. You know the movie Miss Congeniality? I promise this is related. If you don't, it's basically about this cop who has to go undercover as a beauty pageant contestant to suss out who's behind this bomb threat. 
And the whole time, the pageant director is just seething at the fact that this cop is butching up her pageant and undermining the spirit of Miss United States and blah, blah, blah. Come to find out, she was the one planning to bomb the pageant the whole time. The pageant director. In my opinion, one of the greatest villain reveals. But it comes nowhere close to when I found out who was behind the Crying Indian ad. Remember how the ad was made by a nonprofit called Keep America Beautiful? Well, with a name like that, you'd think they'd be some kind of tree-hugging, earth-loving do-gooders. I think the idea behind that promotional piece was to make you think that this was produced by, I don't know, some environmental hippies or something like that. This is Bart Elmore. He's an environmental historian at Ohio State University. He says it didn't take much digging to figure out that hippies were not behind the ad. I had learned that this was pretty much put out by industry, by the beverage canning and brewing industry, to deflect accusations that producers were to blame for this growing throwaway container waste problem. That's right. Keep America Beautiful was, and still is, backed by big beverage and bottling companies. It is what we call a classic AstroTurf organization. AstroTurf being, you know, it looks like grassroots, but it's fake. It's, it's corporately financed. It's not coming from the bottom up. It's coming from the top down. Today, Keep America Beautiful is supported by Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Dr. Pepper, Nestle. The list goes on. Bart thinks it's quite the sleight of hand. He wanted to know more about how these big beverage companies shaped public opinion. So he picked up the phone and reached out to a lobbying organization, then called the National Soft Drink Association. I, like, called a bunch of people. And, and finally, somebody said, hey, you're a historian. Like, there's a bunch of documents downstairs. Maybe you'd like to check it out. And so I went and got to go to the belly of the beast, so to speak, to see, like, the lobbying arm of the beverage industry. That beast was on K Street in Washington, D.C. Um, I still remember there was a little elevator you took down to the basement, and there was just, like, trade journals from the soft drink industry going back to, like, 1900. I mean, it was like, as a historian, you're just, like, jaw-dropped. You're like, whoa. Bart came across tons of documents, and one from the late 60s was particularly revealing. It had to do with what was on the cans, those recognizable labels that Pepsi Blue, that Dr. Pepper Maroon. It works great when your product is on a store shelf. Not so great when it's litter on the side of the road. There's this great document where I think it was a representative of Coca-Cola, but it was somebody in the soft drink industry who said, it's our name on the can. It was such a liability for for this industry, for, for the canning industry, for the beverage industry but specifically for these big beverage brands, because their name was on the pollution. It was literally calling out from the roadside, like, hey, we're the ones that are to blame here. Starting in the late 60s, there were lots of attempts at federal legislation, including legislation that would have barred one-way bottles. Bart says he found that beverage companies were keeping track of these types of bills. And he found documents showing employees discussing how to shut this legislation down. They they did not want to see these systems put in place. They didn't want to have any government intervention. And again, you can think of this as, from their perspective, they wanted to be able to set the price of their products 
sell it the way they wanted to, have these throwaway containers, and in some ways externalize the pollution costs of dealing with this waste. I'm telling you, this has nothing on the miscongeniality villain reveal. We asked Keep America Beautiful about their big beverage roots. Its representatives didn't respond. There's a backstory to this bottle waste. Bart says it begins in the early 1900s. Back then, soda, beer, milk, it mostly came in glass. When you were done drinking your beverage of choice, you'd either leave the bottle for the milkman to pick up or you would return your bottle to a store. Bart says these bottles got reused a lot. If you go back to the early 1900s and look at some of these return rates, I mean, bottles were doing 30, 40, 50, 60 trips. 60 trips from company to consumer. Return, refill, re-enjoy. Bart says that began to change during Prohibition, when many breweries and saloons were shuttered. By the time booze became legal again in 1933, pretty much the only beer businesses left were the big ones. And so you had the big players like Paps and Schlitz and others who, once Prohibition is winding down, now have this kind of open market. Big breweries saw an opportunity to expand. Bart says they were especially interested in bringing beers out of bars and into people's homes. But it cost money to buy glass bottles and ship them to retailers all around the country, and then ship them back to their factories to be refilled. Enter the tin can. Canned beer came on the market in 1935 and was really cheap to make. Beverage companies were psyched. No more bottles to ship all around. Just beverages and cans making a one-way trip to consumers. Switching over was brilliant for business. They didn't have to clean the bottles. They didn't have to reclaim the bottles. There was a lot of cost savings in that regard. In the decades that followed, many soft drink companies made the same move. They stopped collecting and refilling bottles. Instead, most of them went one way. Bart says that was a problem for consumers. They had all these cans and bottles to deal with. It all amounted to lots of garbage. And these things were just everywhere because there was no deposit system. There was no incentive to bring it back. So they're ending up in national parks and rivers and streams. So the scale, as a historian looking back at this, of the problem was just so big that I think it was on everybody's mind. In 1953, Vermont was the first state to do something about all this one-way bottle waste. Cows were mistakenly chomping and stepping on discarded, broken glass. Citizens complained, and lawmakers took action. The state legislature banned one-way beer bottles. This law was eventually allowed to expire, but lawmakers in other states would go on to propose similar moves. When Vermont took action, though, bottling and beverage companies did too. They rallied together and formed Keep America Beautiful. According to Mother Jones, Keep America Beautiful spread fast. Soon after forming, they had anti-litter campaigns underway in 32 states. Its solution wasn't about fewer cans. It was about mobilizing people to pick up their trash. Key to this message was personal responsibility. That idea was central to a memorable campaign Keep America Beautiful debuted in the early 60s, a decade before the Crying Indian ad. It starred a little girl who scolded people for littering. It happens in the best of places. 
in the best of families. Daddy, you forgot. Every little bit hurts. Right, Susan. That little girl was named Susan Spotless. She dressed all in white, and she picked up trash dropped by her parents, telling them not to do so. As Susan Spotless says, keep America beautiful. Make it a family project. Susan Spotless eventually came to feel a little dated. So when the 1970s rolled around, Keep America Beautiful went searching for a new campaign to keep up with the changing times. In 1971, they debuted The Crying Indian, the figure that would come to epitomize our personal responsibility for our trash. It's easy to see how we've internalized this message to this day. We're told to bring our own grocery bags to the store, to eat less meat, to buy electric cars and stop flying so much. And it's made me realize that the personal responsibility narrative is hugely advantageous to corporations, putting responsibility on the individual and deflecting it from the industry. Take this new spot from Coca-Cola. It starts off with stock footage of cans and bottles. Then there's a shot of a lone Coke can being picked up off the grass and gently tossed into a recycling bin. Packaging has become an integral part of modern living and yet has led to major environmental challenges. The Coca-Cola company set an ambitious goal to do their part to help curb this global problem. Through their World Without Waste initiative, Coca-Cola aims to collect and recycle a bottle or can for everyone it sells by 2030. Sounds promising, right? But if you look a little closer, Coke isn't nixing single-use packaging. Instead, it's investing in recycling. And notice how, in this equation, you're still the one responsible for disposing of this trash. We asked Coca-Cola representatives about this. They didn't respond. Listen, these personal choices are important. I know it's not perfect, but I'm going to keep recycling, keep avoiding plastic when I can, do my little meatless Mondays. But the focus around individuals leaves out big business, business that continues to produce and produce and produce with little responsibility for where their junk ends up. It leaves out the wide-ranging, systemic changes governments could make to deal with all this packaging. I wonder, what if we as Americans believed in our collective responsibility and our power to make change together, not just individually? The change might not be so easy, but neither is canoeing down a river full of trash. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig. Next week, some dispatches from Ukraine. About uh, six weeks ago, I left all all my work, so I left all all the job and uh, volunteered to become a soldier in the Territorial Defense Forces. The rest of our team are associate producers Ramoy Phillip and Julie Carley. Lauren Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Annie Gilbertson, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. 
Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. If you want to read more about Bart Elmore's work on Big Bottlers, check out his book, Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. Special thanks to Finnis Dunaway, Bruce Goldman, Ginger Strand, Michelle Raheja, Cody Patton, Matthew Schiltz, Katie Feather, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. If we could see that fictional uh, uh, character again, he wouldn't be crying a single tear. He'd be down on the ground in a fetal position, crying his eyes out.